Well, if you would, please take your Bibles as we continue through John's Gospel together. We're in John 3, 31 through 36, and let's just start by reading this passage together. John 3, 31 through 36. As we read, remember, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. This is the word of the Lord, John 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. What do you think? Do we as human beings... Do we have the right to choose our own religion? Well, of course, there is a sense in which the answer to that is yes. At least in our society, we have a a civil right of religious freedom, which includes the right to worship according to the religion that we have adopted in our society without persecution. But there's another sense to this question that we need to consider. And that is this. What about in reality? In other words, if there is a God, does he give people the right to choose their own religion? Does he care whether they believe in him or not? Or does he require people to believe in and worship him? And will he hold them accountable to do so? Well, our text this morning, of course, speaks to that very issue. Gives us an answer to the question. Do we have the right to choose our own religion? Now, just a little bit in the context here. Remember that this is still at the relatively early stages of Jesus' ministry. He has left the city of Jerusalem after attending the Passover feast there. He's out in the countryside of Judea. He's baptizing people, at least his disciples are baptizing people on his behalf. And in this unique time, John the Baptist has not yet been in prison. So he's out in the Judean countryside baptizing as well. And do you remember in the previous passage, the one leading up to our text, that John's disciples saw that more people were going to Jesus to be baptized than were now coming to John, and they were jealous. But John said to them that it was a good thing, because after all, he wasn't the Messiah, but Jesus was the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he had said. And so John told his disciples, I'm just come to prepare the way for him. So it's good to see Israel going out to him. But now, right after that incident, in verse 31, 
the speaker seems to switch. In other words, the speaker in the text is no longer John the Baptist, though if you just read it through, you might think that John the Baptist is continuing to talk here, but probably most scholars think that the speaker is now switching, that John the Baptist has done, and now the author, John the Apostle, is now beginning to comment upon this Jesus whom John had just said was greater than him. And in this section, you see that John, the author of the gospel, is building upon this theme, which John the Baptist had introduced, that Jesus was superior to him. What does he say? Well, first, the author, John, he begins by making an astounding claim about Jesus. The claim might be summarized this way. That the author tells us that Jesus is from heaven, not earth, and is therefore over all. Jesus is from heaven, not earth, and is over all. And I want to focus in here on verses 31 and tie into it verse 35. But first, look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. You notice those two phrases? He comes from above. He comes from heaven as opposed to being of the earth. Now, human beings, all of us, we came into existence when we were conceived in our mother's womb. That God united to the human body, a human soul in the womb of our mother when we were conceived. We didn't exist before that, in other words. And because of this, we are all, quote, of the earth. Now, it is true that we know of Jesus, that he was conceived in the womb of a virgin. That is, his human nature came into existence at his conception. It didn't exist before that. But he, that is the person, Jesus, he did exist from eternity past as the person of God the Son within the triune Godhead. And of course, this is what John actually described in Verses 1 and 2 of the whole book, he said, In the beginning was the Word, which was his title for Jesus in those opening verses. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Or you think of John eight fifty eight, where Jesus said of himself to the Jews, much to their consternation, in fact, they pick up stones to throw at him after this, because he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Or John chapter 17, verse 5, his so-called high priestly prayer. We hear him praying to God and he says, And now, Father, verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, in this way, Jesus was not like other men. He alone comes from above. 
He comes from heaven. John chapter 6, verse 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 23, he said to them, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. See, it's a common theme in John's gospel. What is articulated in our text? That Jesus, he comes from above, comes from heaven. He existed as the person of God the Son before his conception in the womb of Mary. Now, because of this, John says that Jesus has a unique status in among other man, another, in, among mankind. So look what he says. He who comes from above is above all. And again, at the end, he repeats it slightly differently. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, the language translated above all, it, it's a, it indicated supremacy, a superior status, right? And this is something that is also reflected in elsewhere in John chapter 1, verse 10. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Of course he is above all. He was in the world as a man, but he was also the one who created the world in the beginning. Or you think of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where Paul said of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn there doesn't mean that he was part of the creation, as the ancient heretic Arius thought, but rather that he was the preeminent one in creation. David was called the firstborn, even though he wasn't actually the first in birth order. He was preeminent among Jesse's sons. Well, Jesus is the preeminent one in all creation. Why? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Wow. He is the creator. The man who walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem existed before he was born. He, he comes from above. And he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. So as he entered into his own creation, he is at the same time above all. Astounding, isn't it? Also, we see verse 35. In addition to being above all, look what it says. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. These are the types of verses we just read through in our devotional with a little cup of coffee and we're reading through and we read that verse. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand and then we read on as if something incredible hadn't just been said. He has given all things into his hand? God the Father loves God the Son as he obediently has entered into his own creation, taking a human nature to himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary, being born into the world as a man, growing and developing. And now it is said of him by the Apostle John that God the Father has given all things into his hands. This man. It's the idea of authority. He is above all. And all things are in his hand. 
This too is something we see elsewhere in the book. For instance, John chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son, Him, gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. A little later, verses 25 through 29, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See what Jesus is saying here? I mean, consider the audacity of this. To these Jews who thought he was a a blasphemer, little did they know they would one day stand before this man and he would determine their eternal destiny because God had given him authority to grant resurrection life or to send people to eternal destruction. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Later in his high priestly prayer, Jesus would say, since you have given him, the Son of Man, Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Well, of course, we all know Matthew 28, don't we? We're so familiar with it, but think of what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Well, this is simply what it means to be the Messiah. The Messiah is God's anointed one. His ultimate king, whom the prophet said would come and rule over all for Gabriel to his mother before he was born. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Yeah, we shouldn't balk at this language. This is what it means to be the Messiah. He's not just the lamb who is slain, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if the Bible's true, Jesus is from heaven. He is God come down into his own creation as a man. He is above all, supreme over all creation. He is the ruler of all creation. All things have been given into his hand. Now this is why the fundamental, one of the fundamental confessions of the church from the beginning is Jesus is Lord. Paul said no one can say that except by the Holy Spirit. And to grasp this is critical for our spiritual nourishment in life. In fact, you remember how Paul, he said this in Ephesians 1. He prayed for the church in Ephesus that they would know this because he knew they needed to grasp this for their Christian life. Listen to his prayer again. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul prayed, and we can pray and should pray that God would open the eyes of our heart, that we would grasp these things. The lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it will shape our lives profoundly. Jesus is Lord. Not just our parents, not our professors at school, not our boss at work, not our local state or federal government. They have real authority from God, but it's not ultimate authority. It also gives us love for him. Because as we realize who Jesus is, that he is from above, that he is over all, that all things are in his hand, that though he was existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on a human nature and coming in the likeness of men and became obedient to God, even to the point of death, even death on the cross for our sins. When we see who he was, who he is, it gives us a love for him that we realize what love led him down to sacrifice himself for us. And not only that, to be raised from the dead, permanently united to a human nature so that he might permanently be our bridegroom, our great high priest. Just as surely as he will never be separated from his human nature, He will never be separated from us, his blood-bought bride. And it gives us a security to know this about Jesus, that, that he truly is over all, that all things are in his hand, that he is ordering all things after the counsel of his will. And therefore, as our good shepherd, he can protect us. Nothing can get to us unless it comes through him. You know, you children, when you're laying in your bed at night and you start to get a little bit frightened, when you think about perhaps there's a monster in their bed or, or you think about something that's scary, just think this. If you believe in Christ, nothing will get to you unless it comes through him. It also gives us great hope because Jesus is patient right now with human rebellion. Why? Because He is working out his purposes in human history to save his elect people. But the time will come when he will raise the dead, when all will hear the voice of the Son of God and come to life and stand before him. And he will judge the wicked and he will make all things new and he will bring us into the new creation and he will establish his righteous rule in full there and we will experience peace forever. That he is above all and over all gives us great hope. And finally, it also gives us a great, a holy fear. That we must learn to fear him above man. That we must 
care more about what he thinks of us than what other human beings do. That we must do his will above all, even if we suffer at the hands of men for it. And unbeliever, let me just say to you for a second, think of what is being said here and realize it's only if you do you have the right to choose your own religion. You must have an understanding that what the scripture says is that Jesus is above all because he is from heaven. So the first thing we see is that the apostle John makes this astounding claim about Jesus. He says that Jesus is from heaven, not earth, that he is over all. And then second, he explains one implication of this. And the implication might be summarized this way. We should believe Jesus' testimony because being from heaven, he speaks with firsthand knowledge. We should believe Jesus' testimony because being from heaven, he speaks with firsthand knowledge. This is verses 32 through 34. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Now, no human being besides Jesus has firsthand knowledge of God. That's preposterous. We are of the earth. We've never been to heaven. We've never been to the presence of God. But since Jesus comes from above, since he comes from heaven, he alone does have firsthand knowledge of God. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John 1.18, he had, John said of Jesus, no one has ever seen God. God, the only one who is at the Father's side, he has explained him. Verse, chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said this, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. Let each one of those little particles slip into your brain and consider what he means. Tragically, though, even though Jesus, as he lived on earth, as he walked in human sandals, walking through the streets of of a Galilean city or through Jerusalem, he spoke about God, about God's words to man from this unique first-hand knowledge that he had because he had come from above. And yet, verse 32 says, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, this isn't comprehensive because the very next verse, he says, whoever receives his testimony, dot, dot, dot. So we know some did, but the point is that the vast majority of people did not listen to what he said, did not believe it. And he's speaking here mostly of the Jews because Jesus ministered in among the Jews. John 1.11, it says of him, he came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. John 5.43, Jesus says to the Jews, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. Verse 34, look what he says. He whom God has sent utters the word of God. Now, if you hear of a person that they utter the word of God, that they say, thus says the Lord, what do you think? He's a prophet. Well, that's what's being said here. 
he is a prophet, except he is the ultimate prophet. John chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, but him his who sent me. John chapter 12, verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. Jesus came as a prophet, the ultimate prophet, uttering the words of God, except look at what the next line says. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Now the he here is not Jesus, but God the Father who sent the Son. God the Father gave to this prophet, to this man Jesus, the Spirit without measure. Every prophet was enabled to speak by the Holy Spirit, right? Second Peter 3, or one twenty one. no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But, but in the same, it is true that Jesus was one of these prophets, spoke from God by the Spirit. But they spoke in a limited way, right? I mean, for instance, not every word that they said was from the Holy Spirit, but Jesus spoke God's words in a full way. Why? Because God gave him the Spirit in his human nature. He was enabled by the Spirit without measure to speak the words of God. And if you think about it, because he was God become man, because he was the God-man, it wasn't just some of his words, it was all of his words that were God's words and therefore fully true and authoritative. He never spoke anything that was wrong. He was the ultimate prophet. In fact, that's why John calls him in chapter 1, the word. The word who became flesh and dwells among us. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He's saying those who accept Jesus' words, that is, his words about God, his words about us as human beings, his words about sin and judgment, about himself and his salvation, about the future. Those who accept Jesus' words as being from God, and they show it. They receive the words. They take them in. They show it by responding in obedience Well, when they do that, John says, they set their seal. It means they certify, they attest that these words are truly from God. The main point here is this. Jesus alone is from God. He alone can speak about God with this firsthand knowledge. He alone can reveal truth to mankind that he has received firsthand from God. Oh, there were other prophets, but he is the ultimate prophet. He is the word of God become flesh to dwell among us. And so you see what John is saying is to accept Jesus's teaching is true is to say that God is true. And then flip it around to deny Jesus' words is to do what? To deny that God is true. What does this mean for us today? Well, maybe you're here and you're not a believer today. You're not a Christian. You know, there are so many voices clamoring around in our world telling us what is true about God. 
and spiritual things. You know, philosophers, they try to use principles of reason to reason their way up to God. And they come up with all kinds of weird notions about what he's like. Other religions claim that God has spoken to them. And they write, holy, they write scriptures, which they call sacred. Modern day prophets and, and other kinds of mystics claim to have heard from or experienced God in some way. And, you know, most of, even more profound than that, we live in a day when people, every individual person thinks they have the right to just say, well, I think that God is like this. But Jesus alone can say, that he comes from above, that he speaks from God of what he has seen and heard. He alone is the word of God, the full and final revelation of God who reveals to us what is true. And, how, and you say, well, how do you know? Well, guess what? He performed many miracles which attested to what is truth and they were written down. And you say, well, I need more than that. Well, what? What else do you need? What are you expecting? A, a videotape, perhaps, a, uh, um, some camera images, some audio recordings. He gave us the best possible evidence you could get, right? First-hand eyewitness testimony of what Jesus said and did. That's what you got. We can trust what Jesus says about God, that it's true. Now, of course, all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and we should believe it all as God's word, but Jesus is the full and final revelation of God, so all this is saying is we must listen to him if we want to know the truth about God. And his words are recorded for us, preserved for us in the New Testament, written down by those who knew him, listened to him, walked with him, as they spoke, being carried along by the Spirit. Believer, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we too, what can we do but look to the words of God? What can we do but to look to Jesus as the full and final revelation of, for, of God to us, to know who he is, that we might know him more, to hear his words to us, to know his will for us. I mean, think of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus telling us, here is the word of my kingdom. This is for you. It's also an impetus for us for evangelism and for missions, isn't it? Because we have this word from God. We know of Jesus. And there are so many people who don't know. So we should take this treasure and we should give it to others. Point them to Jesus. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So, first, the apostle John makes an astounding claim about Jesus. He says that Jesus is from heaven, not earth, and he is over all. And then the second... He explains one implication of this, that we should believe Jesus' testimony because being from heaven, he speaks from firsthand knowledge. And now third, finally, John provides us with a sober warning. And the warning could be summarized like this. Whether or not we believe in Jesus determines whether we will have eternal life or suffer eternal destruction. Whether or not we believe in Jesus 
receive his word will determine whether we have eternal life or suffer eternal destruction. Of course, this is verse 36. Look at the first line. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now that phrase, whoever believes, it could be a little bit misleading if you read it the wrong way. This is not an offer. Whoever believes, of course that's true, but this is actually a statement of fact. In the Greek, it could literally be translated, the one who is believing in the Son. The one who is actively believing in, trusting in Jesus, has, is receiving his testimony. Right now, in the present, the one who is believing in the Son has eternal life. Now, that's interesting. It's not quite what you'd expect, is it? Because it doesn't say he shall have eternal life in the future. It says he has eternal life in the present. All who are in this category, actively believing in the Son, have eternal life. Now, eternal life in John's gospel, it is something that is more than just everlasting life. This is a qualitative life. It's, a re- it's talking about a relational dynamic. It's life and fellowship with God. You all know John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life also is something that speaks to our redemption. It speaks to the fact that we've come out of death, that we've escaped from judgment, that we're no longer condemned. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So eternal life is coming out from death and judgment into fellowship with God. It begins with regeneration because John, Jesus said that, that we, are, we need to be born again. Well, what is being born again? It's new spiritual life. That's the moment you pass from death to life when the Spirit brings you, regenerates your heart, causes you to be born again. But it culminates eternal life in resurrection, a life that will last forever. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a sense in which you could say this. Eternal life is that we have right now through being born again of the Spirit, having passed out of judgment. Eternal life that we have right now is nothing other than the initial foretaste of an experience of that resurrection life that we will experience in the last day. It's resurrection life brought into the present. John can say that whoever is presently believing in Jesus has this eternal life in the present because the moment we believe, we are forgiven. We are reconciled to God. We are rescued from the punishment of eternal destruction. We are given new spiritual life in fellowship with God, and it will never be broken. John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. They might die physically, but they're not going to die. They're not going to be severed from God. This is good news. This is the hope of every sinner, isn't it? But now the warning. 
He goes on to say, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting. There's parallelism between the first and the second part, but there's differences between the two parts, right? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not, and you would expect it to be believe, right? But instead it's obey. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And once again, we need to see in the Greek, this, this could be translated, those who are not obeying the Son, or the one who does not obey the Son. In other words, it's an ongoing, present activity. Now, it is parallel to believes. So, not believing is presumed here, but the emphasis here is on not obeying. Why? Because if you do not believe in the Son and you do not pass into eternal life with a fellowship with him, then you are, by definition, disobeying him, right? And the point is, beginning with unbelief, you are remaining in a state where you're just living in rebellion against him. There's no neutrality here. If you refuse to believe in the Son who comes from God, who is over all and all things are in his hand, if you refuse to believe in him and you continue what? Just doing your own thing. Well, that is rebellion. That is disobedience. You are in the category of people who are not obeying the Son. You're not submitting to God's appointed King and Savior. You're rebelling against Him. And He says of those in that category that they shall not see life. Now, this is parallel to that phrase, has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But notice the tense change. Did you see it? From has eternal life, present, to shall not see life. Future tense. Now, once again, it's presumed that the person who is not believing in Jesus, who is disobeying Jesus, does not have eternal life in the present. But the focus here is on the fact that where they're headed, that as long as they continue in this state of disobedience, they shall not see life. That when the final day comes, they will not enter into the kingdom of Christ in fellowship with him forever. They will not be raised to glory. Instead, they will receive the just punishment for their sin. They will perish forever. Eternal destruction. Hell. Romans 2, 4 through 8 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. They shall not see life. But you notice that Paul said, or John says one more thing. In the present, he went on to say, the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, because they are living in a state of disobedience to God, having refused to believe in the Son, they they stand condemned before God. Having rejected his anointed king, God's righteous wrath 
is provoked against them. As they await the final judgment, the wrath of God remains on them until that day when he will finally satisfy the demands of his holy wrath by sentencing them to hell. This is Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's a present state. God's wrath is revealed against them. Now here we clearly see precisely because Jesus is from heaven and above all the one sent from God who speaks the words of God by the power of the Spirit given without measure, believing in him is not optional. It's a requirement for all human creatures made in his image. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And we should not think of this as somehow oppressive and harsh that John would say this. It's a warning. It's it's said to us ahead of time to prevent us from perishing, right? It's like the police officer coming to your door and saying, hey, get out of your house. A wildfire is just around the corner, right? It's, It's a warning given now to so that you won't perish. Because the good news is that Jesus came the first time not to judge, but to save the world. To invite all who would come to him. To believe in him that they might not perish, but have eternal life. So unbeliever, if, you're, if you are here this morning in a state of unbelief, then you are in a state of spiritual death. You're living in disobedience to God. You're under his wrath as a result of your sin. And your sins demand that punishment of death. Eternal destruction and hell, if you continue in this state, if you die in your sins, you shall not see life. This is the warning. But the good news, the call to you is that God has sent his eternal son into the world, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he's done everything that's necessary to save sinners like you and me. He has lived a perfectly righteous human life, which we all know we haven't done, He has fulfilled all of God's commands on our behalf as our representative head. He has died a sinner's death in our place. He's borne the punishment that we deserve for our sins on the cross. He's risen from the dead, vindicated and victorious over sin and death. For us, if we will believe in him, he's now in heaven as the king and mediator for all his people. Through what he has done, you, unbeliever, can be forgiven and declared right with God right now, reconciled to him, adopted into his family. All is a free grace, a free gift of grace. If you will only stop rebelling against him, repent, turn, and believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, trusting him to save you according to the promise of the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I pray that you will do that this morning if you haven't already. It's only if you refuse to do that and continue disobeying his son that you will continue in a state of enmity and condemnation before him and you will end up perishing. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the question is, what will you do? Will you believe in Jesus and live? Or will you continue disobeying him in unbelief and perish under his wrath? How you respond to Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. Believer, 
you have eternal life right now. You have passed from a state of death to a state of life. You have gone from being under God's wrath to being reconciled to him. You are at peace with him. More than that, you are in his favor as his adopted children. There, believer, is your source, my source of gratitude to God. There is the spring out of which our love for God comes. There is that hope which anchors us through the storms of life. Here is the reason why we seek to please him by keeping his commands. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies your heart with good. That your youth might be renewed like the eagles. Do we have the right? to choose our own religion? (laughs) Does God give people the right to just choose whether they will believe in him or not? Well, the answer we've seen from this text is clear. According to the Bible, the answer is a resounding no. He has sent Jesus from heaven. He has set him over all. He has given all things into his hand. And Jesus alone testifies to us about God and his will for us from first-hand knowledge. And whether or not we believe in Jesus will determine whether we have eternal life by his grace or eternal destruction because of his justice. This is our only option. (laughs) And the fate of our souls hangs upon it. But what will we do? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that even in these so few verses as these that we have looked at this morning, you give us profound truth. Truth that is shallow enough for the simplest, youngest child to understand and yet deep enough that we can never plumb the depths of it in full. Oh God, we pray that you would seal these words upon our hearts. That you would help us to respond to them in faith and obedience. We pray for the lost in this room that you would save them and for us as your children, your people, they would nourish and strengthen and guide us by them. May they be a light to our feet, a light to our path. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.